Welcome to On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. And I'm your host, Anna Kuzman. This is our final episode in this special three-part series on family treatment courts. Today we have a special guest on our show who's also connected to the King County Family Treatment Court. If you haven't listened to the first two podcast episodes of this series, I highly encourage you to go back and have a listen. But first, a quick word from what some might call our sponsors. This podcast is being brought to you by the Justice Programs Office, a center within the School of Public Affairs at American University, and in part by the Bureau of Justice Assistance, which is housed under the Department of Justice. The ideas and thoughts expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect those of the Justice Programs Office, American University, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or the Department of Justice. We want to welcome Teresa Anderson Harper to On the Docket today. Teresa is a graduate of the King County Family Treatment Court and has maintained a special connection to it since she successfully completed the program. Teresa, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? What's your story? I'm um, a single mother with addiction and mental health. Um, I gave birth to eight kids. I adopted out three I've had um, three prison stays, done a lot of DLC in and out of the county jails, and um, I'm now in recovery. Thanks for um, being so open and willing to share your story with us. Uh, What was it like to be a participant in the King County Family Treatment Court? Um, It was like a breath of fresh air. um, As you heard, I've had a lot of um, court issues and in and out of a jail because of my addiction and mental health. And um, um, they listened to me and um, they assessed uh, appropriate services um, and um, um, they offered me wraparound, which was able to get my family on board too. So that was really amazing because um, although they weren't going through counseling and stuff, they found um, better ways of communicating with me that weren't harsh and um, harmful to my recovery process. What was the most challenging part of the program for you? At first, it was trusting, and um, then it was um, before wraparound, it was being heard by by the professionals. I feel like um, my history at first before wraparound was defining my abilities or who, where I was going to go and who I was. And for those of our listeners who don't know what wraparound is, um, could you just give us a brief summary of what's provided through wraparound services? Um, it brings um, all supports, natural supports that I um, wanted to and all the professionals that were involved in my case. We all sat at the table in one room and we brainstormed um, uh, the path that um, that I wanted to take and um, how it tied into my services or kept it tied to my services through brainstorming. Um, they heard my voice um, and was supportive. I, they also helped me hear other people's voices. There's some interpretation that goes on there, too. They amplify family voice and choice. So I understand that you now work for the King County Family Treatment Court with participants currently in the program. Um, So I wanted to know how you became involved 
with working for the program? So after my case was closed, I um, um, volunteered or I um, filled out an application or whatever and joined the parent allies. And then I volunteered with the parent allies from, I think it was like about four or five months after my case closed forward. And in doing that, I um, during that time frame, I was um, I became state certified as a peer, and I um, also became a parent partner. But what I did with Family Treatment Court was I volunteered as a parent partner for wraparound services. What is your current professional role within the program? My current professional role in the program is a family recovery support specialist. So what types of things does that entail? What what does your job uh, require you to do on a day-to-day basis? Um, sometimes it's phone calls after hours. I attend meetings. Sometimes I transport them to different appointments. Um, sometimes I'm uh, at different appointments for for recovery or moral support. Um I attend teams, which is the FTC team calls everybody to the table, and um, we meet um, and are working on um, the participant moving forward in the program. I attend wraparounds um, in kind of like the same fashion, but we honor wraparound uh, um, guidelines and rules, and so the FTC team does suit up and show up there, too, as a team. Um, my focus there is uh, amplifying family voice and choice and also the recovery component. Um, I do housing searches, like we go from apartment building to apartment building, um, uh, filling out applications and do what we can. I find resources. Um, I interpret from to the professionals what the client is saying or the participant is saying, and I also interpret what the participant is saying or feeling to the professionals. I um, I um, go to, I bring recovery understanding to the table. Sometimes um, the professionals aren't as therapeutic, like I come from a mental health background from my work, and so, um, and we're a therapeutic court, so I just helping people come up to speed with what's therapeutic. It sounds like it's really necessary to have people like you taking care of those tasks in the program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what advice do you give to participants that you work with or others um, who are choosing to enroll in a family treatment court program? That um, I guess to let go of pride would be the, one of the bigger things I see as a, a block for us, our shame and guilt and our pride that we are definitely capable and able and um, that that um, it's being done all the time. And, and so transparency and, and honesty are really important, too. I see that people struggle with that um, um, in mainstream everything in society-wise. Um, usually, um, you know, those are weaknesses when we have issues. We're like, hey, I, I don't know if I can do this. or We won't say that because um, we feel like it's going to be viewed as a um, as a um, as a bad thing. So um, stating that we need help or we don't understand or we want um, 
we'd like to do better, but we don't know how to or something like that. Just um, the main thing is pride and shame and guilt and how it impacts us and keeps us from engaging. Earlier, when you were talking about your involvement um, when you were a participant in the program, you mentioned that they worked with you and your family in the program. Um, and I've also heard you use the phrase family voice and choice uh, when you were talking about your current position with the program. So I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what that exactly means, what family voice and choice means, um, and any ideas or strategies you could give to practitioners working in other family treatment courts around the country on how to engage the whole family in the program, not just the single participant. Mm. Okay, so with the engaging the family, it's like family that would like to engage that's healthy. And and with wraparound, it has to be the the participant's choice. So if I we have a parent that um, has a mother or father or aunt or uncle or a natural support that is healthy for them and wants to support them, then we try to include them in trying to help build on the natural support so that there's um, support after the court walks away, that they are fully supported. Another another thing is, is, um, is listening to the family. A lot of times people will decide that our family isn't healthy for us or that um, we are a certain way because of our criminal history or... Um, because of our absence, that we didn't really have a bond with our children, or I don't know, there's a vast number of things, and those necessarily aren't true. When they get resistance, sometimes they think that we're not willing or we are we are um, resistant to treatment, and, and sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes uh, it's more like we feel offended or we are... Um, we cognitively distort things, um, addicts do, because of our emotions. So we have shame and guilt about what we've done and where we've come from. And when we're in this um, process, sometimes that impacts our ability to look like we are um, fully engaged or it, it impacts our ability to stay in progress rather than just compliance because people aren't able to read what's really going on with this and um, um, validating the feeling sometimes gives them the motivation to do the services, just knowing that even though what they're feeling might not be right and it's not useful for the meeting that we're having right now, being heard means a lot. So let me ask you about that. What do you do about families who don't want to be involved or who don't support the individual? Um, we work with the client then to um, to build natural supports um, that aren't that aren't necessarily blood related. Um, I have rebuilt my family. Does that make sense? So we try to help them build their own support network and not get caught up on is that you know does their blood run through my veins? They've been at every court date. They take you everywhere that they can possibly take you. Um, they pass background checks and they can support your children. They have insurance on their cars, you know, those type of things. Um, sometimes we help them build relationships with the foster parents. Sometimes the foster parents become natural supports like grandparents, you know, in in the big picture. So we we try to work on on making sure that they have what they need 
if they don't have it already. And if they do have it, then fine-tuning it. Um, a lot of times our our natural family, our, our biological family, sometimes has been very... Um, very harmed by our active use. And so they have anger and residual stuff left over because we've gotten clean so many times in the past that, um, that they don't really believe it's going to stick or they don't want to, you release the kids, even though the kids aren't in their care, they're in the state's care with the family. But we get a lot of resistance when we're doing well, because they're fearful that we're just going to not continue to do well. And so helping them get out their frustration with the participant and still be supportive of the participant. But usually if we never acknowledge that family member's feelings, um, then there's resistance there and it's hard, especially when the kids are placed with family. So we like to try to let that family member get it out and that, that that both sides acknowledge that they have some issues with the other and that they're supportive still of one another and find healthier language to talk to them or not to imply things, to ask questions and put safety plans in place so there's not a lot of assumptions being made. We don't heal on timelines. We heal when we feel safe and and and, and so that we can open up and, and do the work. So I, I heard you talk a lot about, you know, helping people both the participant and family members trust again. And um, also another common theme as I've been working on this whole series, even from with talking with Jill in the last episode and Evan in the first episode, um, is redefining family and what that looks like in the criminal justice system. Yeah, my family is really <laughs> different now. And um, my older kids are kind of resistant to it, but they see that it's working now. And um, the baby, which is nine, she's not a baby, but um, it works for her. She has several support people. And even my 19-year-old, he's been with me now since he was 13. But even for him, like, and it's even healthy for me because it's not all on me. It takes a village to raise a family. And so my kids have in their own support network that I interact with and that I feel comfortable with and that they are absolutely comfortable with works for me. Because of how they care for my son, they've earned my respect, if that makes sense. Yeah, so um, I, I've even been touched by um, just the different growths and watching this foster thing between parents and these kids and the foster families, these foster families that end up becoming like grandparents or aunts are in a, are actively stay in the family's life as a support network. Those have become amazing relationships. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, how, you know, foster parents are changing too. Yeah. They are changing their outlook. It used to be they didn't want any contact with us and and they thought we were bad people, too. And now a lot of times um, because of their reports and them, some of them wanting to have contact, they become support for the parent and the child by stating what they've seen or how they've seen the parent interact with the child if it gets to a comfortability of that. Are there any elements of the family treatment court model or program that you think should be changed or anything you would add to the program to help participants find success? If I were going to change anything, I would um, change us confronting the addict as a team 
and not just from the recovery from the recovery um, person, which is myself. I would I would uh, change it so that the whole team embraces the recovery concept of building a support network, of having um, the sponsor, of checking in with that support network, building support networks for your kids. All these things provide safety for the addict, for the child, and and for recovery. If they're not bonded with that recovery, there's a difference between sobriety and recovery, and we would rather see our parents reside in the recovery area than the sobriety area. That sobriety area is subject to come back at any time. Not that we don't re- relapse sometimes in recovery, but people that have recovery um, and are working towards recovery and it's a constant work and we know that and we're constantly in it when somebody's just decided to quit using um it doesn't it's not healthy it's not moving forward it's not addressing like these issues that I had I had before I started picking up they were picking up the drugs were a symptom of the problem and so like afterwards the trauma therapy and the you know ongoing mental health and different things and shame and guilt classes and stuff like that. Those are things that keep me functioning healthy. That's the recovery work. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations on your own personal success, but I also want to thank you for using your story and your experience to help others find that same success for themselves and for their families and for all the important work that you're doing for King County Family Treatment Court. Thanks for being with us and sharing your story, Teresa. Right on. Thank you very much. For more information on Family Treatment Courts, check out the other episodes in this series by visiting the Apple Podcast Store and looking for On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center or NDCRC. If you haven't been online to check out our website, please visit us at www.ndcrc.org. Shoot us an email at ndcrc@american.edu and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is the NDCRC. Podcast artwork, mixing, and editing by me, Anna Kuzman. Original music by Peter Grosser, titled Skipping in the No Standing Zone. Many thanks to my team at the Justice Programs Office, my project director, Preeti Menon, WAMU Studios, Jake Cherry, Timothy Olmstead, Teresa Anderson Harper, and Jill Murphy for connecting Teresa to the series. Thanks for tuning in.